Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us about the history of Islamic Spain as viewed through its art and architecture. And the origin of this talk was very much a, a trip to Islamic Spain that I'd hoped to make this year, but obviously wasn't able to, to go on that. So I signed up for a, a one-week virtual course on the art and architecture of Islamic Spain, delivered by the School of Oriental and African Studies, uh, which is part of the University of London. As many of you know, I, I enjoy looking at history through the lens of the material world. So this talk relies heavily on pictures and we'll use art and architecture to illuminate both Islamic culture, but perhaps even more importantly, the relations between the Christians and the Muslims. The talk's in five sections. I'll set the scene with some historic context. During that context, I'll use Toledo as an example. And then I'll look at the art and architecture of Islamic Spain through the cities of Cordoba, Seville and Granada. And then we'll look at the acceptance of Islamic art and architecture in Christian Spain, and we'll come up to date with what is sometimes called the Moorish Revival. So I expect this will take just about an hour, and I will do my best to unravel some of the complexity in this story of Islamic influence on Spain. Also, if I use a name or a term that you may not be familiar with, or more likely I haven't pronounced correctly or clearly enough, I've tried to remember to ensure the word appears on the slide. And if I can't find a more elegant way of doing it, it'll be in a little grey box. So what I'm hoping is if you've visited any of these places, and I'm sure many of you have, and you have photographs, maybe this talk will encourage you to revisit, remind yourself of those times. Historians of medieval Spain tend to fall into one of two camps. One is the Covivencia, or living together school. And in this view of the world, the Christians, the Jews and the Muslims all got on well together in general and lived in relative religious peace and tolerance. The second camp characterizes the Muslim period in Spain as one of religious conflict and persecution. I think until the fall of Islamic Granada, the artistic record supports the Covivencia camp. The Roman aqueduct to Segovia, Castile. So this talk focuses on the Islamic influence of Spain, but it'd be very remiss of me not to mention the significant impact of the Romans. This magnificent aqueduct in Segovia, 80 kilometers north of Madrid, is one example of the scale of that impact. Roman emperors were so fond of Spain that outside Seville is a town called Italica, from whence came the Roman emperors Trajan, Hadrian and possibly Theodosius. Marcus Aurelius's family came from near Cordoba and became wealthy through the production of olive oil. So quite how significant Spanish olive oil production was to the Romans can be gauged from this man-made hill in the centre of Rome called Monte Testaccio. It contains the remain of nearly 53 million olive oil amphora, nearly all of them from Spain. At its peak, the citizens of Rome were consuming around 1.6 million gallons of imported Spanish olive oil a year. And I've done a quick calculation, and I think that represents about a thousand ships a year sailing from Spain to Rome. So the point I'm trying to make here is Spain was well connected and an integral part of the Roman Empire. Wikipedia advises us that whilst wheat and wine amphora could be recycled, or indeed when broken, ground down and mixed with lime to make concrete, 
the olive oil which seeped into the pots would have reacted with the lime to make not concrete, but soap. And this brings us back to the theme of this talk. It was the Muslims who introduced the idea of glazing the insides of the olive oil amphora to enable them to be washed and reused. The arrival of Muslims. So Spain was an integral part of the Roman Empire and greatly influenced by the culture and artistic style of the Romans. And as we shall see, the coming Islamic rulers were happy to incorporate Roman artifacts into their buildings. As Rome fell, the Goths from Northern Europe spread through France and by the early sixth century had conquered most of Rome and Spain, Hispania. At the end of the sixth century, the Visigoths adopted Christianity and built many churches, some of which survive in these current times. By the year 718, Muslim invaders from North Africa had conquered all of Spain apart from a small region in the north called Asturias. It's from here that the Christian reconquest of Spain started. So whilst you're looking at the map of Al-Andalus, uh, Islamic Spain, make a note to where Seville, Cordoba, Toledo and Valencia are, because they all feature in the talk. There is a school of historiography that posits that the Visigoths persecuted the Jews, who therefore aligned themselves with the Muslims in the overthrow of the Visigoths. It's certainly true that the Muslim conquerors tended to prefer to leave Jews in charge of the cities that they conquered. The Muslims called Spain Al-Andalus, a name that lives on in the name of the southernmost province of Spain, Andalusia. A place called Septa, this was the name in Roman and Visigoth times. Post the reconquest, it was known as Cueta, a Spanish enclave. Ruta del Carres, Picos de Europa, Asturias. So as a picturesque reminder that geography shapes history, Astoria is divided from the rest of Spain by the Picos Mountains which provide an effective barrier to conquesting people, be they Romans or Muslims from the south. The region enjoys an average 40 inches of rain each year, which is about the same as Wales. And there's another interesting connection with Wales. The prince or princess of Astoria is the title used by the heir apparent to the throne of Spain, comparable to the Prince of Wales in the UK, St Isidore of Seville. And just to highlight that the Goths were or became a civilized people, Isidore of Seville was a scholar and for over three decades, the Visigothic Archbishop of Seville. He is widely regarded in the oft quoted words of the 19th century historian Montalbert as the last scholar of the ancient world. His fame after his death was based on his Etymologia, an encyclopedia which assembled extracts of many books from classical antiquity that would otherwise have been lost. It was supposed to be a summary of the world's knowledge distilled into 448 chapters in 20 volumes. And it was so successful that many learned people stopped using the original source books, which were then consequently lost. His entomologia is less well known in modern times, but Pope John Paul II named Isidore of Seville the patron saint of the internet in 1997. I think patron saint of Wikipedia would perhaps be a better analogy. I think it's useful to note, as, as we moved forward, that Spain had been Christian for only just over 100 years when the Muslims arrived. And depending which end date you choose, Spain was an Islamic country for the next 500 or 700 years. So the term reconquest, with overtones of return to rightful owners, may not be how it was viewed at the time. Some historians say the term gained currency with the wider Crusades and after the religiously intolerant Almohads invaded. Visigothic church architecture. Even before the Muslims arrived, Spain was well connected with Eastern Mediterranean countries. For example, the Visigothic church of San Pedro de la Nave in Northern Spain shows such a connection. Column capital. It is of a type called historiated as it tells stories. 
On the side facing us, you can see a person between two lions. It refers to the story of Daniel in the lion's den, which occurs in both the Christian and Jewish holy books. These historiated capitals link back to the Coptic Christians in Egypt and Syria. The impost, or the band above the capital, shows twisted plant stems forming circles, known as roundels. These roundels are filled with birds or animals and are similar to Byzantine and indeed Persian Sassanid motives. I particularly like the similarities in the guinea fowl from San Pedro and from Baghdad. Also note on the Coptic roundels how the roundels cross over, intertwine, giving extra depth and interest to the carving. Abdul Rahman, the first Emir of Cordoba. This is the man that effectively started 700 years of Islamic rule in Spain. The statue of him is in Granada and overlooks the sea towards Africa. So how did the, the Muslims conquer Spain? Some historians, mainly Western, regard the following story as fiction, while some Arabic scholars say there is documentary evidence. Roderick, who was king of the Visigoths, fancied Florinda, the daughter of his nobleman Julian. Julian was the Count of Coeta, a Visigothic enclave on the north coast of Africa. Julian had left Florinda in Roderick's care, and depending on the story, Florinda either wasn't interested and Roderick ravished her, or she had an affair and got pregnant by him. In revenge, Julian switched allegiances and joined with the Muslims in North Africa and led them into battle and defeated Roderick in 711. However, the cultural story really starts a generation later with Abdul Ahrakman I. He was a princely member of the Islamic Umayyad Caliphate, born and brought up in Damascus, Syria. He was around 20 when the Umayyads were overthrown by another branch of the Prophet Muhammad's family known as the Abbasids. Many members of the Umayyad family were killed in the fighting and eventually the victorious Abbasids declared an amnesty. The remaining 80 of the Umayyad family were invited to Jaffa to be pardoned. At a celebratory dinner, they were all slaughtered. The only prince that was not killed was Abdul al-Rahman, who escaped as a fugitive pursued by assassins. He fled through Egypt and North Africa and kept traveling west, eventually, after five years, reaching Spain in 755. He mustered an army and defeated the local Muslim ruler and established the Emirate of Cordoba. Thus, Islamic Spain under his rule, which lasted nearly 300 years, had more cultural affinity with Syria and Baghdad than with North Africa. If you were taking the long view, you might say he was a Syrian refugee making good in the EU, Al-Andalus. Around 200 years later, at the start of the 10th century, the eighth Emir of Cordoba decided that his military successes were due to God's support and he should be the spiritual leader of the Spanish Muslims rather than deferring to the Caliph in Baghdad. And he declared Cordoba a caliphate. And for 80 odd years, life was reasonably stable and peaceful. The Christian kingdoms occupied the northern third of Spain, while the caliphate controlled the southern two thirds. In the Christian north, the kingdom of Astoria had become the kingdom of Leon. Cordoba was a major port on the navigable Guadalquivir River, giving access to the sea. Guadalquivir comes from the Arabic Al-Wadi'i Kiva, which means big river. I love the way that sometimes these exotic sounding foreign names translate into something so simple and basic. Cordoba had grown from strength to strength and Cordoba had, had 100,000 inhabitants was about five times the size of London at this time. But like London, it was a port city having navigable access to the sea, and like London, having a capital long, a long way inland on navigable river provides both a highly defensible location while facilitating foreign trade. 
However, from around the year 1000, weak leadership of the caliphate saw regional Muslim lords grow in strength. And in 1031, they overthrew the last caliph of Cordoba, bringing to an end the Umayyad dynasty and the caliphate. The caliphate split into around 24 regional kingdoms called taifas. They were militarily weak, but culturally strong as they vied to outshine each other. And just as the Christian kings fought amongst themselves, so did the Muslim rulers. And often Muslim rulers would seek Christian kings as allies and vice versa in their quest for power. Spain in 1210 and 1248. Some of the regional Muslim kings looked to the military strong Berbers in North Africa to support them. The Berbers came, liked what they saw and decided to stay and rule. The first dynasty was called the Amoravids and the second and last dynasty was called the Amahads. The Amahads were more devout than the Taifa rulers and were more hostile towards Christian and Jews, and many Jews fled to the Castilian court in Toledo. Meanwhile, as the Muslim kingdoms weakened, the Christian kingdoms in the north strengthened and continued to take lands from the Muslims. And by 1248, the Christian kingdoms had conquered all of Spain, except for the Emirate of Granada. And just note that the Emirate encompasses much more than just the city. From Gibraltar to Almira, it's about 200 miles. Muhammad ibn Nasir, who overthrew the Berber Amahads and founded the Nazareth Emirate of Granada, was an Arab, not a Berber, and from a poor farming family, so he did well. His dynasty survived more through politics and diplomacy than fighting. His rise to power was assisted by Ferdinand III of Castile, who he had helped take control of Cordoba. And when eventually Muhammad became too powerful, there was a political showdown. And rather than risk a devastating war, Muhammad agreed that the emirate would become a vassal state of Castile. Half of the state's revenue was paid in tribute as protection money to the crown of Castile. The emirate of Granada survived for another 250 years until 1492. Its wealth came from controlling trade with North Africa, especially the gold, ivory and slave trade from sub-Sahara Africa. These, together with their fine silks and ceramics, they traded with European and Mediterranean countries. Financially, Granada became weaker as Portugal started to control the trade with Africa through dominance at sea. And the beginning of the end came when Prince Ferdinand II of Aragon married Isabel I of Castile, and 10 years later, he became King of Aragon, effectively uniting all of the kingdoms of Spain except for Granada. Ferdinand and Isabel conquered Granada 13 years later in 1492, and Spain, as we know it, came into existence. 1492 is, of course, the year Columbus discovered America and the gold and silver mines, the coffee, tobacco, cocoa, sugar and cotton plantations and the slave labor of the Americas soon brought untold wealth to initially Spain and Portugal and then to Northern Europe. Synagogue of the Transition, Toledo. When the Almohads took control of Islamic Spain in the 12th century, many Jews fled to Toledo creating the largest population of Jews in Spain. There were 10 synagogues in Toledo, of which only two survived to this day, many being converted to churches after the pogrom of 1391. This was caused in part by the ostentatious living of Samuel Levy. He was King Pedro I, who was known as Pedro the Cruel. He was his first minister. Samuel Levy, with Pedro's agreement, built an enormously lavish decorated synagogue, Synagogue El Transito, which is now a museum. And although Samuel came to a sticky end, the synagogue does encapsulate interracial tolerance of the ruling classes at this time. Here we have a Jewish building being built with the sponsorship of a Christian king and built in the Islamic style. El Greco's view of Toledo. It is noted for capturing mood, not the reality of Toledo, and was the first Spanish landscape painting since the church banned landscape painting.
let's look at what the governorship of Toledo can tell us about power relationships and religious relationships during the time that Toledo was ruled by the Muslims. This chart summarizes 300 years of Islamic Toledo, and it hopefully illustrates the power battles for and the allegiances of the Islamic rulers of Toledo. So in 785, 788 and 797, there were attempts to overthrow the rulers of Toledo. The one in 788 was actually led by the Emir's son. All these revolts were defeated. Between 852 and 873, the Muslim rulers made an alliance with the King Ordono of Astoria and effectively became an independent city-state. Between 920 and 932, there were more revolts, and Toledo's governors sought help from King Ramiro II of Leon. But Ramiro was preoccupied with his own civil war against his brother Alfonso IV. For the next hundred years or so, Toledo seems to have well behaved itself. In 1031, the caliphate collapses and Toledo becomes one of the Taifa states, an independent kingdom. In 1062, Fernando I of Leon attacks Toledo and King Al-Mamun agrees to pay tribute. In 1071, Alfonso VI of Leon is temporarily defeated by his brother and he takes up refuge in Toledo. In 1075, Toledo briefly conquers Cordoba and a revolt in 1082, Toledo is eventually defeated with the help from Alfonso VI. And in 1085, Alfonso VI has had enough of all this, and he actually takes over control of Toledo. So what I've hoped to show in this timeline, this suggests to me, is that there was not institutional religious hatred between the Christians and the Muslims. They were just rulers seeking power and seeking to stay in power by whatever means they could. The coat of arms of the King of Spain. So Spain's legacy to its previous kingdoms can be seen in the country's coat of arms. The Castle of Castile, the Lion of Leon, the stripes of Aragon and the gold chain of Navarre are prominently displayed. Granada is squeezed in at the bottom with the pomegranate, Granada being Spanish for pomegranate, and the fleur-de-lis is the symbol of the royal family who belonged to the House of Bourbon. So the King of Astoria, which was the first Christian kingdom established after the Umayyad conquest of Iberia, rebranded itself the Kingdom of Leon when the capital was moved to Leon. Art and architecture Islamic Spain. So that gives us the historic context and we can now turn to the art and architecture of Islamic Spain and what it can tell us about the exchange of ideas and relationships between people. And I think it's helpful to look at this art and architecture in four phases. So from 756 to 1238, when the Muslims were the dominant power, and Cordoba is an excellent example to look at for that. The Kingdom of Granada from 1238 to 1492, when all of Spain was under Christian control, except for Granada, then we can look at from 1238 to 1614, when most of Spain was under Christian rule, but there were still many Muslims in Spain and their artistic legacy was very strong. This is sometimes called the Mujar period. Mujar meaning Muslims in Christian lands as opposed to Moz Arabs, which is the term for Christians in Muslim lands. Throughout the 1500s, harsher and harsher restrictions were imposed on the Muslims culminating in 1609 when King Philip II decreeing that the remaining Muslims must be expelled. So the last phase starts in 1614, when an estimated 300,000 Muslims were expelled. Children younger than six had to be left behind to be brought up as Catholics. Spain's Islamic heritage was, was deliberately forgotten, and it remained like this until 1759 when King Charles II of Spain sponsored an architectural survey of the legacy of the Muslim period Many of the buildings were in a very, very poor state of repair. But as artists from across Europe became aware of these ruins, the picturesque, romantic and oriental mystique captured in their paintings and writings 
heralded a new appreciation of the art and architecture of Islamic Spain, a movement termed Moorish style or Moorish revival, which lasted into the 1930s. There are four phases we'll look at, but first we'll go to Cordoba, and in particular, the great mosque of Cordoba. So the area of the original mosque is highlighted with a yellow rectangle, and its design is just how the great mosque of Damascus would have looked around the year 750, when Abdul Ahrahman, who has become the first emir of Cordoba, fled his home in Damascus. So the distinguishing features of this type of mosque are the rectangular design encompassing a large courtyard, which is just as much part of the room for prayer as the covered parts. Roofs and covered walkways supported by many columns termed hyperstyle and a square minaret to make the mosque location visible for calling the faithful to prayer. The courtyard in the great mosque of Cordoba was planted with rows of fruit trees and would have been open to the mosque letting in light and air, not like it is today. A well-ordered, fruitful garden could be seen as a metaphor for well-ordered and fruitful society. Interestingly, whilst the prayer wall in a mosque is supposed to face Mecca, Abdul al-Rahman wanted the Cordoba Mosque to be orientated the same way as the Damascus Mosque, so it faces south rather than southeast, i.e. it doesn't face Mecca. The first mosque was expanded three times in the next 200 years to cope with the expanding population of one of the largest, most successful cities in the world at the time. So whilst the overall shape is based on the Great Mosque of Damascus, a lot of the building material reused previous Roman material, especially columns and capitals, and we'll look at that in a second. This not only made good economic sense, but the reuse of material, called spolia, was also felt to imbue the new building with some of the spiritual success of the previous empires. In 1238, when the Kingdom of Castile conquers Cordoba, the mosque is converted to a cathedral, but only very minor changes were made by the Christians at that time. They created small delicate chapels in the Forest of Columns. Fundamentally, they respected the building. This changes in the 16th century with Habsburgs, and in 1523, the construction of the Cathedral of Cordoba started, and they decided to insert the cathedral in the very heart of the former mosque. Apparently, when Charles V visited the cathedral, he was displeased by the result and famously commented, you have destroyed something unique to build something commonplace. The famous red and white arches of the great mosque of Cordoba. Because of this extensive use of spolia, the columns and capitals of the original part of the mosque have no unifying style. For example, some columns are smooth, some banded, and some have spiral ribbing. Nowhere is this artistic development more evident than the horseshoe-shaped arches. Used sparingly by the Romans, they became a dominant feature of Islamic Cordoba, especially as we see here with the alternating white stone and red brick. Instead of using a gallery to create extra height, the great mosque of Cordoba uses a double row of arches. And apart from Roman aqueducts, this design is unique to the Emirate and Caliphate of Cordoba. The rows and rows of citrus trees in the courtyard and the rows and rows of columns in the mosque emphasize the uniformity of use of this combined space. Apparently, because brick and stone resonate at different frequencies, by alternating these materials in the arches, the Roman and Islamic builders made the buildings more earthquake resistant the Mirab of the Great Mosque of Cordoba. The most lavishly decorated place in the mosque is the prayer niche called the Mirab. In this case, the niche is a whole space providing a private room for the Caliph. The horseshoe-shaped archway into the niche with the framing square panel is a typical feature. Note also above the framing square, a row of polylobed arches and the same polylobed arches appear to the left and the right of the Mirab. We will see these designs again and again.
So zooming in, you can see the facing of the Mirab niche is decorated in gold and blue mosaics. This new, much grander Mirab was built in the 10th century. And whilst mosaic design and hence the craftsmen to create them were common in the 8th century, by the 10th century, these skills have been lost to the Muslims. Mosaics are very complicated and expensive to produce. So the Caliph had to import craft people from Constantinople as the Byzantines still excelled in the art of mosaics. Notice the very finely carved stonework, unlike in the Alhambra where it's carved plaster, a much more forgiving material. Here it's carved in stone. This is the same picture with some designs highlighted in red. Note the top band of gold lettering in Kufic script on very expensive blue lapis lazuli imported from Afghanistan. And for contrast, just below, the top band is blue Kufic lettering on a gold background. Note again the square frame around the horseshoe arch, which is termed an alphys, and the carved fans either side of the arch, a symbol from Imperial Roman times. It indicates that this is where the most powerful person is to be found, just in case you're in any doubt. Madna Alzara. Just outside Cordoba was a 10th century palace called Madna Alzara. It was built as a palatial city, a center of power designed to distance the caliphs from lobbyists and pressure groups. Today, it's just glorious ruins, with some parts reconstructed. The concept of a palatial city is common. The same happened with capital moves from Baghdad to Samara and from Fustat to Cairo. We've come here to see an excellent example of a trilobe doorway and decorated frame in a secular setting. Note the projections for hinges, for monumental doors which would have hung here. The whole wall would have been covered with a very finely detailed stone carving of abstracted vegetative designs. Many European diplomats visited the Caliph at Madna al-Zara and their reports described the opulence, the silks, the lush gardens with fountains and the exotic animals. A political retreat in Buckinghamshire, I suppose the closest equivalent for Britain of the ancient palatial city would I suppose be Chequers. It even has the walled garden divided into quarters in a style reminiscent of the Persian paradise gardens and the Islamic Charbagh, synagogue of Cordoba. So before we leave the architecture of Cordoba, this is the west wall of a small synagogue in Cordoba. It was converted from a synagogue after the expulsions of the Jews in 1492 and only rediscovered to be originally built as a synagogue in 1885. And it's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In the center is the classic polylobed arch, Islamic arch that we saw in the mosque. Here, Hebrew inscriptions frame the arch, but many of them are now missing. The diagonal repeated lozenge shape pattern above the arch was introduced by the North African Berbers and became popular in the Nazarid period. We will see more of this style in the Alhambra. I include this picture to show the Jews adopted the same artistic aesthetics as the ruling Muslims. Every casket made in Cordoba. The fine detailed carving we've seen in the stone on the buildings was equally impressively executed in, their, in other mediums, such as wood and metal. But the medium that today the Cordoban art craftsmen of the Islamic period are best known for is ivory. This casket was produced just after the collapse of the Caliphate of Cordoba in the early 11th century. It was modified in the 17th or 18th century when the silver mounts were added. And this is also perhaps when the Arabic inscription, which would have run along the band at the bottom of the lid, was removed. Its original use is suggested by the inscription on another similar casket, which reads, I am receptacle for musk, camphor and ambergris, although its owner might equally well have kept jewellery or other valuables in it. 
The roundels on the front of the box, which show pairs of seated figures playing musical instruments and holding drinking vessels, attest to the importance, amongst the high classes of Cordoban society, of poetic soirees, at which time much wine was drunk and poems improvised to the accompaniment of music. The favoured settings for such gatherings were the beautifully cultivated palace gardens. We see depictions of two people in a roundel. On the left, a person blowing a musical instrument, whilst on the right, the person is smelling a flower whilst holding a cup of wine. In the other round on the front of the box, a musician plays a lute while the person on the right holds a flask of wine and a flower. Abdul Hassan, nicknamed Zuyab, the blackbird. Before we leave Cordoba, a brief cultural interlude. If you recall the time when one had dinner parties, then one guest you most certainly would have been interested in was a ninth century musician and style guru whose nickname was Zuryab, which translates as Blackbird. He was born as a slave and brought up in Baghdad as an apprentice in the courtly music school. He fled Baghdad when the head musician at the court recognized that his talents were so much more superior to his own that his job was at risk and he threatened to kill Zuryab if he didn't leave. The next most cultural city in Central Asia or Europe at this time was Cordoba. So he fled to Cordoba, where he was warmly and richly welcomed and effectively became the Minister of Culture and was his generation's arbiter of taste, style and manners. And supporters of Zoyab claim that he was an excellent musician and knew the lyrics and melodies of thousands of songs. He was a poet and knowledgeable on the culture and customs of many people. He set up Europe's first music school he invented the five-string oud, precursor to the modern guitar. He invented the flamenco style of guitar playing. He established the concept of a meal comprising courses, starting with soup, then meat, then fruits and desserts, and finishing with nuts. The term from soup to nuts is credited to Zuryab's menu plan. He established the tablecloth and the use of crystal rather than silver or gold for wine glasses. In the fashion world, he was equally revolutionary. He, he introduced new haircut styles, taught the shaping of eyebrows and the removal of body hair. He introduced the concept of seasonal clothes and seasonal colors. As diplomats, students and travelers from Europe came to Cordoba to study science, medicine and philosophy, they took home with them not just knowledge, but new ideas in art, music, cuisine, fashion and manners. The Giraldi Minaret, Seville Cathedral, 1198. So we move on to the section on Muslim art in Christian cities. Unlike Cordoba or Granada, there is very little left in Seville that was built under Muslim rule. And the Muslim art and architecture we can see today is mostly due to Muslims working for the Christian rulers of Seville. This is despite the fact that Seville was under Muslim rule from the 8th to the 13th century, more than 500 years. The reason for this is that Seville's golden age didn't get started until 1492, when Seville became the port for trade with the New World, and this resulted in a tremendous building boom. The most visible example of Islamic architecture in Seville, and indeed a city icon, is the Giraldi Tower of Seville Cathedral. The tower was originally the minaret for the city's mosque, and when the mosque was knocked down in the 15th century, the Christians kept the tower. The story goes that the Muslim caller to prayer, the Muzin of Seville, was an old man who would have had difficulty climbing the stairs to the top of the tower. So instead of stairs, there is a ramp so he could ride his donkey up the tower. It was built by the Almohads, the Muslim Berbers who controlled Southern Spain in the 12th and 13th century. They are particularly noted for building tall square towers. Architecturally, things to note about the tower are the facade decorated with multi-lobed arches, highlighted in red, 
and a repeated stepped lozenge or diamond pattern highlighted in yellow called sebka, a design introduced by the Almohads and continued by the Nasserids in the Alhambra. And we saw this same design being adopted by the Jews in their synagogue in Cordoba. St. Justa and St. Rafina. How deeply the Giraldi Tower became embedded in the psyche of Seville is illustrated by a 17th century painting by Murillo of St. Justa and St. Rufino. We see these third century Christians of Seville holding a model of the Giraldi Tower. The legend is that Justa and Rufino were sisters and ran the best pottery in Rome and Seville. They refused to let their pottery be used in a pagan Roman festival to the goddess Venus. The crowd, outraged, broke into their pottery and stole some pots. In revenge, Justa and Rufina smashed the statue of Venus. In return, the Roman prefect had them tortured and killed, creating the first Christian martyrs in Spain. Who would have thought statues could be such emotive things? The Alcazar of Seville. So Alcazar comes from the Arabic Alcazra, the palace. It was built by Christian King Pedro of Castile in the 1360s. King Pedro adopted the Muslim Nazareth architectural style for his palaces. Most of the previous palaces were destroyed in the redevelopment, but the south face of the Patio de Yezo remains. Mohammed V, who was busy developing his Alhambra Palace at the same time, probably sent craftsmen from Granada to help King Pedro with his renovations, particularly with the plasterwork and the Sebka design. You can see the similarity between the original Berber design of the Patio de Yezo in 1200, the Christian Patio de la Docellas in the Alcazar in the 1360s, and the Muslim Nazareth Court of the Lions in the Alhambra. We know that in 1364, while the Alcazar Palace was being built, Pedro sent craftsmen to Granada to work on the Gothic elements of the Alhambra, such as the painted leather ceiling in the Hall of the Justice, Palace of the Lions. Patio de la Doncellas. In both decoration and style, the Christian-built Alcazar is an Islamic palace laid out as sunken gardens, crisscrossed by water channels, and planted with aromatic citrus trees just like at the Alhambra. The blue sky and the warm sun and the shade from the courtyard design and the cooling effects of the water all look most inviting. End of Islamic rule, Granada. One wonders how much the early Nazareth emirs were aware of their precarious state as the last enclave of Islamic rule in Iberia. If the design of the city palace called the Alhambra, Arabic for the red one, is anything to go by, they were acutely aware. It looks like the sort of place designed for lockdown and social distancing, as we shall see. The strong fortified walls and a rocky outcrop with commanding views over the town and surrounding countryside, and the assured underground water supply from the nearby mountains, created the perfect place to see out the end of an era. The fact that southern Spain was reconquered by the Christians in 40 odd years, and the Nazareths held on for another 250, is very impressive. It was the craving zeal of Ferdinand and Isabella that eventually defeated the Nazareths and caused the conversion or expulsion of the remaining Muslims. Jews as well were forced to convert to Christianity or were expelled. Somewhere between 40,000 and 200,000 were forced to leave, many to the Ottoman Empire, where they were warmly welcomed. The age of Convencia, living together, had ended and the age of the Inquisition had started. Ferdinand and Isabella did alter many of the palaces that make up the Alhambra, but only a little. It was the Holy Roman Emperor V in the 1520s who wanted a summer palace who caused the most visible impact to the Nazareth architecture by having his Renaissance-style palace built in the centre of the complex. In the 1700s and 1800s, the Alhambra was a run-down area occupied by squatters 
And in the early 19th century, Napoleon Bonaparte's troops were billeted there. I doubt they would have added much to the cultural heritage. Note the left-hand side, the dominant square of the Camaras Tower in the foreground, the Alhambra Patio de Camaras. The Camaras Tower shows the Islamic preference for a dialogue between open and closed space and shows how the dominant exterior of the Camaras Tower doesn't dominate from inside, but is framed by the courtyard and reflected in the calm water of the Court of the Myrtles. The tower was originally painted in red and white stripes. The reflection we see here is no accident. Polymath and poet Hazim al-Katajani, who died in 1285, wrote, I declare that among the loveliest things we can see are the reflections of shining stars, candles and lamps on the surface of pure, calm waters in streams, rivers, channels and inlets. Also, the image of trees with their fruit and leaves reflected on the water's surface is one of the most marvellous and pleasing things we can gaze on. Perhaps the most famous of all Islamic art in Spain is this fountain, which gives its modern name to the court. Figurative sculpture is more common than often thought, and an integral part of any Islamic garden would have been water features, including animal sculptures spouting water. Note the sepka lozenge shape and the polylobed and horseshoe-shaped arches in the background. The Monzon lion. Cast bronze animals were a favourite form for fountains in the royal palaces. This was found in Monzon de Campos in the Spanish province of Valencia. There's a hole in its belly for water to go in, and there would have been a jet in its mouth to create the fountain. The tail can be raised or lowered, but to what purpose is unknown. It has many inscriptions in Arabic wishing the owner well. However, the most interesting aspect of the decoration is its conceptualization into zones. For example, the shields, where the legs join the body, and the mane, rendered as stylized tufts. The Pisa Griffin. Recent academic research has concluded this three-foot-tall beast was made in Al-Andalus around the 11th century. It has the typical Arabic inscription in Kufic letters around the beast's chest and flanks, wishing the owner well. This particular beast was designed to be a musical instrument and had bellows that would have originally made sounds when air was pumped into it. Some historians theorise that the mechanism inside and the sound produced was similar to bagpipes. There are still a few existing descriptions of what was intended. In the 10th century, an Islamic geographer, Al-Hamadini, writing about an Islamic palace in Yemen, writes, On each of its corners a statue was set, a yellow bronze of the biggest size of lions there is. When the wind blew in the direction of one of these statues, it would go through its posterior and come out through the mouth and make the sound of a wild beast roaring. Note the similarity of this griffin to the griffin on the ivory box we looked at earlier, in particular the semicircular arc where the wing joins the top of the leg. And note also the shield on the top of the legs, just like on the wide-mouthed bronze lion we just looked at. So the Islamic gardens were designed to assail all the senses, the visual beauty of the symmetric layout of the colourful flowers, the perfumes of the flowers and perfumers, the sound of trickling water from fountains, and the drone and roar of the bagpipes. But why is this called the Pisa Griffin? The reason why it's called the Pisa Griffin is because sometime in the 11th or early 12th century, it was taken to Pisa, where it was affixed to the roof of the Pisa Cathedral. It was possibly acquired by the Pisan campaign against the Saracens of the Balearic Islands sometime in 1113 or 1114. Figural representation in Islamic art. So the Islamic resistance to the representation of living things ultimately stems from the belief that the creation of living forms is unique to God. And it is for this reason the role of images and image makers 
has been controversial. The strongest statements on the subject of figural depiction are made in the hadiths, the traditions of the prophet, where painters are challenged to breathe life into their creations and threatened with punishment on the day of judgment if they cannot. The Quran doesn't forbid figurative art, it forbids icons. So all through Islamic history, in many territories, figurative art was popular, certainly amongst the powerful who were above any earthly retribution. So from the naked figures in bathhouses on a mural in Jordan in 730, through dancers in Baghdad, figures on ceramics in Iran in the 1100s, to a rare Iranian 13th century statue, to an Egyptian Mamluk engraved bronze, to the famous miniature paintings of Persia and Mughal India, figurative Im images were very common. Back to the Alhambra. Palace of the Portico. A generation or two after our poet Hazim al-Katajani was waxing lyrical about reflections, a Muslim architect had more practical advice for his well-to-do clients. He wrote, in the center of the garden, let there be a pavilion in which to sit and with vistas on all sides, but of such a form that no one approaching could overhear the conversation within and whereunto none could approach undetected. Another clue perhaps about how precarious the Nazarids felt their position to be. Santiago de Penalva. So we now move to the section on Islamic influence on Christian Spain. Santiago de Penalva in Northern Spain was built in an isolated mountainous valley in the Christian kingdom of Leon. The modest church built in 937 has Celtic, Byzantium and Islamic design elements. The distinctive Alphys doorway, that square frame, made out of local stone, but very similar to the Madna Alzara palace in Cordoba, the Braga Pixis. A Pixis is a cylindrical box with a lid. This one comes from the Cathedral of Braga in Northwestern Portugal. It's made from carved ivory and dates to between 1004 and 1008. Inscriptions on the vessel indicate it was made for the vizier and general Abdul al-Malik. It is not known how the cathedral acquired it, probably through donation or plunder. Top right is a linear drawing of the design on the Pixis, which very much echoes the architecture in Cordoba at the time, even down to the composite capitals on the columns. The cathedral also has a small gold and silver chalice made at the same time and with similar decoration, and the chalice fits nicely in the Pixis. It is surmised that the chalice is made specifically to match and fit the Pixis. The chalice has the name of Count Don Mendo, a court official, who it is known initially was at war with Abdul al-Malik, the power behind the Caliph of Cordoba, but later was friends with him. This chalice therefore shows at the very least Christian appreciation of Islamic art in the early 11th century. Processional Cross of San Milan. San Milan de la Cogola is a small village with two large monasteries in the Rioja wine-growing region of northern Spain. This is one arm of a processional cross which was probably made at the time the church was dedicated in 984. It is made of carved ivory and traces of gold inlay. The carving shows symmetrical paired griffins, birds, giraffes, lions, and other quadrupeds. The carvings are almost identical to that produced in the Caliph of Cordoba's ivory workshops, as exampled by the pixies shown on the right. And if we zoom in, the similarities are even clearer. The overall shape of the cross is consistent with Visigothic art from Astoria at the time, while the carving is clearly based on the Cordoban ivory workshops. The execution is not as fine, however. If you look at the bird's plumage, for example, so it may well have been produced locally by Christians from Cordoba who had migrated north 
Christian Manuscript 945 Robert Andrews Cope. This slide shows on the left-hand side a page from the Christian Manuscript dated 945, and on the right a fragment from a silk cope that belonged to Robert of Anjou, King of Naples, who died in 1343. The silk was probably woven around 1100-1150 in Almira in southern Spain. As we've seen, roundels were a common artistic device in both Christian and Islamic lands, and usually contained animals or birds. Peacocks were particularly popular, as with a little bit of artistic ingenuity, the peacock's tail could be used to create the roundel. The fact that a Christian king would feel comfortable wearing a silk cope made of cloth woven in Muslim lands and containing Islamic inscriptions for blessings attests both to the quality of the fabric and the design and to the relations between the faiths. A Muslim and a Christian played chess. It was in the 13th century, and particularly in Toledo, and particularly under King Alfonso X, that the integration of Islamic and Christian art became firmly established. Buildings had a recognisable Christian form, but Islamic ornamentation. Alfonso sponsored the Great Translation Movement, where many Arabic texts were translated from Latin into the vernacular. Some of these texts recorded Arabic scientific knowledge that was way ahead of Europe at the time, such as the medieval treatises of Al-Razi. Some were themselves translations of ancient Greek texts. And most famously, Gerard of Cremona searched Europe and the Middle East for a copy of the great Greek treaty on astronomy, the Almagest. He found it in Toledo. He learned Arabic and spent the rest of his life in Toledo translating Arabic science into Latin. Probably more Arabic science passed into Western Europe at the hands of Gerard than in any other way. However, I'm digressing somewhat. Alfonso had commissioned a book called, in English, The Book of Chess, Dice and Backgammon, which certainly for the chess section gave many examples of games and many of these examples were taken from Arabic books. And as you can see from this illustration, which depicts a specific chess challenge, Alfonso was quite relaxed about the illustration showing a Muslim and a Christian playing chess in an Arabic tent with Arabic writing. Chess was extremely popular with both royalty and the nobility representing the tactical skills of battle, as well as romance and courtship. Girls were equally educated and proficient in chess, and sometimes games were played to decide the fate of a city or a princess. This scene is intriguing. It is the only four-page picture in the book. It is the last picture in the chess section and shows a Muslim warrior with sword and spears defeating a Christian. A Game of Chess by Edward and Lord Weeks, which brings me on nicely to one of my favourite pictures as as we look at the artistic legacy of Al-Andalus. From the second half of the 18th century all the way through the 19th century, European artists, poets and writers visited Spain and were enthralled by the Islamic ruins. By capturing the romance and exoticism of the ruins, they inspired European-American enthusiasm for the Moorish style. Here we see a game of chess being played in one of the Alhambra palaces. The scene conjures up courtly life in the Emirate of Granada, yet the palace is run down. The walls should be brightly coloured and the niches on the walls should be full of exotic treasures such as ceramics and ivories. The floor is uncarpeted and the pot plants look in need of some tender loving care. The scene is brilliantly lit and the lady's demeanour and expression invite all sorts of conjecture as to what is happening here. Do you think it's the knight's move? I have definitely fallen under the Moorish spell. Someone else who fell under the Moorish spell and did more than anyone to promote the Moorish revival style was the 19th century Welsh architect and designer Owen Jones. Like many wealthy new graduates of the 19th century, he went on a European tour, but he also took in Egypt and Istanbul, but he was most inspired by the Alhambra. On his return to England, he produced a lavishly illustrated 12-volume book called 
plans, elevations, sections, and details of the Alhambra, which took him 10 years to produce. He sought to incorporate the ideas from the Alhambra in his designs and architecture, and not surprisingly, he soon earned the sobriquet Alhambra Jones. Today, he's best known for two things. One, for designing the highly successful interior colour scheme for the Crystal Palace Great Exhibition of 1851, which he did against widespread criticism from his peers and the public. And two, for producing a magnificently detailed, beautifully coloured book called The Grammar of Ornament, which described and illustrated 20 decorative styles. His book is today still referenced in architectural and design courses. Jones had limited success in trying to persuade the British to adopt colour in their buildings, for as his obituarist wrote, colour was as much feared in England as the smallpox. Grove House, however, we will look at a few examples of the Moorish revival that Owen Jones helped to create. For example, here is the Moorish room of a private house in Hampton, built in the 1890s and very much based on Owen Jones's books. It was on the market in 2015 for just under six million pounds. Another example of Owen Jones's legacy, unfortunately, the building was turned into a car park, but in the 1870s, this was Scarborough Aquarium. With the Victorian railways making UK travel accessible and affordable, holiday resorts were keen to attract visitors and foreign architecture was one way of creating a sense of the exotic and adventure. Castle of Samizano. I would love to visit this 19th century private villa in Italy, but I'm not sure I'd want to live in it. Gaudi's Casa Vicenza. Gaudi was also a fan of the Moorish style, as his first house, now a museum, illustrates. The building itself stands as an early example of the architect's Neo-Mudijar architecture, and it's one of eight UNESCO World Human Heritage Sites in Barcelona. Alhambra geometric tile work. I haven't talked much about the role of Islamic geometric patterns and tile work, but these tiles in the Alhambra fascinate another well-known artist who produced a new genre of Western art. On 20th of October 1922, Escher creates a drawing of tiles in the Alhambra that in retrospect would have a major impact on his life. In his diary, he noted, it was wonderfully oriental. The strange thing to me was the great richness of decoration and the great dignity and simple beauty of the whole place. Those Arabs were aristocrats, such as no longer found today. However, he also noted, the strange thing about this Moorish decoration is the total absence of any human or animal form, even almost of any plant form. He spent that whole afternoon sketching an intricate starburst tile design that fascinated him on account of its great complexity and geometric artistry. And he, of course, went on to produce tessellations by using animal or human forms rather than geometric forms. So I want to finish with ceramics, and this is uh, Malaga lusterware from the 15th century. So this almost two foot in diameter deep dish, now in the V&A, is an exemplar of the finest luster finished pottery available anywhere in Europe in the first half of the 15th century. It was produced in the Emirate of Granada, and the metal tin glazed luster makes the ceramic shimmer like silk, and the scratch decoration called scravito adds detail and texture to the ship and the sails. At the end of the 13th century, when Queen Eleanor of Castile married Edward I of England, on arriving in England, she took one look at the pottery in use in the royal household and immediately had a 56-piece dinner service imported from Malaga. Menises ceramics. Another less well-known ceramics are the Menises ware. A noble from Menises just up the coast from Malaga enticed with large payments the potters from Malaga to come to Menises to create a highly profitable ceramics business. The noble not only took an annual license fee from the potters, but also a percentage of the sale price, and he got extremely rich. The distinguishing feature of this ware is the reverse side is as highly and expertly decorated as the front side. 
The scrolling rim decorations, geometric patterns and pseudo-Arabic script show that the Islamic artistic style was still highly prized in the 15th century. Paterna dish, 14th century. Unlike Menises, whose market was very rich, Paterna, a suburb of Valencia, focused on affordable ceramics. Rather charmingly, accurate, high-quality reproductions are readily available today. This is one of the most popular designs made by Muslim potters for a wide variety of customers under Christian rule. Our 14th century Paterna ceramic may be the inspiration for the Starbucks logo. In 1987, when the company was sold, it was rebranded as a coffee-only company, and the mermaid's hair was brought from her back to the front for increased modesty. For some reasons, it was the story of Moby Dick that inspired the founders of Starbucks, and they initially named the company Pequod, after the name of the whaling ship, but they felt customers would struggle with the name. Likewise, they dismissed Ahab, the captain, and Ishmael, the narrator, and eventually settled on the name of the first mate, Starbucks. In this whistle-stop tour, I hope I've shown some of the architectural and artistic designs used by the Muslims in Spain and how they adopted and appreciated Roman and Christian art and design, and likewise how the Christians valued Muslim art and design. And as one of the SOAS lecturers noted, culture was very permeable, not polarised as often portrayed. There are lots of examples of cordial relations and appreciation of non-Indigenous culture between Christians, Muslims and Jews. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.